for now. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, let me pray before we read together. We are profoundly grateful for your grace, almighty God, that we experience in so many ways and supremely in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that um, your grace would be at work in our hearts now, causing joy to overflow, uh, causing love to abound, and prompting us to serve. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 2 Corinthians then, chapter 8 and verses 1 to 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, In all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Please keep that open. There's an outline as ever on the back of the notice sheet you may want to to follow along. Um, I was looking the other day at some wedding vows for a a couple who are getting married in uh, a month or so's time. I was struck again. My favorite line actually in the vows, I may have told you this before, is where the, the bride and groom say to each other, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. It's that expression of of complete self-giving. I'm holding nothing back. I'm giving myself completely and unreservedly. That moment's a a great picture of the Christian life. That's why I mention it. Uh, In the, the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives himself to us in love, completely and unreservedly to the point of death on a cross. And in return, we give ourselves back to him. We love because he first loved us. And I find that perspective on the Christian life especially important uh, today. It's the time of year when we stop and uh, think about our finances as a church family and hear from God's word on the subject of Christian giving. Uh, Now, of course, when we talk about Christian giving, we're talking about very much more than money. Uh, We're also talking 
uh, as we've prayed already about how we use our time and our talents and our energy in support of God's work in the world. And at different stages in our life, we may have more or less of one kind of resource than another. Often when we're younger, we're relatively cash poor but relatively time-rich. We might go through a phase with a slightly higher disposable income, but no time at all, and then the needle can flip again. But at every stage of our Christian life, of our life, the Christian is the one who is so preoccupied by Jesus, so captured by his grace, that we want to be asking, how can I, being the person that I am with the responsibilities and opportunities that I have make the most of all of my resources in service of God. And like every aspect of our godliness, it takes careful thought to know how to answer that question. It takes a lot of prayer. And this morning isn't ever meant to be a total answer, but I hope it will be a help to us. I always say, whenever we're talking about money, our aim isn't to guilt trip or to manipulate. That's why we don't hold, uh, pass around a collection plate on a Sunday morning. But we do want to help each other to think biblically about this important aspect of our response to all that Jesus has done for us. And it's to that end that we're looking at 2 Corinthians 8 this morning. We'll think first about the grace of our Lord Jesus, as you'll see it there on the sheet. And the question I want to mull on is how much has God given us? Our first point, the gift of grace. Uh, It's helpful to distinguish between the the general blessings that God gives to all people, irrespective of what we believe, and then the saving blessing that he gives exclusively to those who put their trust in his son. Theologians tend to call them common grace and special grace. And uh, we just said that line in the, the prayer of thanksgiving, almighty God, the father of all mercies, we your unworthy servants give you our humble and heartfelt thanks for all your loving kindness to us and to all mankind. And common grace reminds us that everything in creation and in life that we enjoy and love has been given to us by God. So when the rains fall from heaven that grow our food or when the sun shines and it warms our face or every time our hearts feel even a hint of happiness, every view, every experience that takes our breath away, every penny in our pockets, every qualification in our CV, the gifts of travel, uh, education, stable government, medicine, every opportunity we've ever had, every talent and ability we possess, every good day of health we've ever enjoyed, fun, friends, family, fitness, fulfillment. The Bible says that God gives us everything, life and breath and everything. So that any cause or any time we've had an opportunity, any time we've had cause to be thankful in life, Our thanksgiving is rightly directed to our God in heaven because every good gift is from him. There are hard things in life for all of us. And uh, sometimes they're so hard and painful that it can be tempting to reverse engineer our view of God from our pain. If I've experienced this, 
then maybe God isn't real, or maybe he isn't good, or maybe he doesn't love me. And it's understandable that we're tempted to think like that, but that's not who God is. It's not how he feels about you. There's so much to say on this, but one part of reminding ourselves who God really is, is to stop and count all of our material everyday blessings, as well as the spiritual wouldn't be a bad thing to look around your home today, look around your life, and to make a, a mental list of every good thing that you enjoy. The people, the places, the godly pleasure. And to say to your Father in heaven, I want to stop and thank you for that, and for that, and for him, and for her. It is so much easier to, in life to grumble about what we don't have than to be grateful about what we do. That tends to make us grabby rather than open-hearted and generous. But rehearsing God's grace to ourselves in our heads and in our hearts can bring us out of ourselves and open us up to God and to others. But of course, the greatest grace of all is found in the Lord Jesus. And the setting here in 2 Corinthians is a collection that Paul was organizing for some Christians back in Jerusalem who were facing financial hardship. Maybe there'd been a famine, that's what most think. Um, the Corinthians had pledged to support the collection, but they hadn't yet done so. So Paul's writing to encourage them to turn their original good intention into real action. But what I want us to see is that in trying to motivate them, he doesn't pull rank and say, I'm your apostle. You've got to do as I say. And he doesn't issue a command. Instead, he talks about grace. Verse 8 is just over the page. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Uh, he's not telling them anything they don't already know. But true change in the Christian life will always come from grace. And so he puts the cross in front of their eyes and reminds them how Jesus became lower than he ever deserved to be. So that we might be lifted higher than ever we could hope to be. And when it says that Jesus was rich, he's uh, talking about the, the unimaginable and eternal wealth of glory that he was enjoying with his Father in heaven before he came to earth, before even the creation of the world. Um, I googled the other day the richest man alive, apparently not Elon Musk at the moment, but um, Bernard, Bernard, uh, Arno, the, the chairman, the CEO of uh, Louis Vuitton. Uh, his personal fortune stands at $211 billion. Uh, if my math is right, that means if he'd been working every minute of every night and day since the year naught, he would have had to be earning $200 a minute ever since to amass his cash. He's reasonably well off. Uh, but the riches that Jesus was enjoying in heaven were of a kind that Bernard could only dream of. Uh, they weren't just about wealth, but about honor and glory and wisdom and authority and power. 
And he had an infinite abundance of all of them. He was in very nature God. But we're told he didn't consider equality with God as something to use for his own personal gain, but chose instead to make himself nothing. And so he came down to earth making himself poor, uh, born into a borrowed feeding trough to a teenage mum. And he never owned a home. But again, the true depths of his poverty weren't financial. Isaiah says he had no fame or beauty that we should desire him. There was no heavenly entourage that was accompanying his every move, no choir that followed him around singing his praises. He was never once in life given the honor that he deserves. Instead, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he was smitten and afflicted by God himself. That was the moment of his deepest poverty. As he took upon himself all of the sin of all of his people all through history, all of the punishment that we deserve from God. And he paid for it in full in order that we might be saved. That's what we'll be remembering on Good Friday as we gather for that quiet service this week. And those three words in the middle of verse 9 tell us why the one who was rich for beyond all splendor was willing to become so poor. Do you see those three words in verse 9? It was, for your sake. So he died out of love in our place so that we through his poverty might become rich. Again, that's not financial in him, says Paul. We are given every spiritual blessing. So all of the, the filthy rags of our sin are removed from us and we're clothed instead in his robes of righteousness. We're set free from the chains of death. We're given the gift of eternal life. We're given new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for us until we go and receive from him the crown of righteousness as that Lord Jesus allows us, if we've trusted in him, to share in his eternal glory and reign and victory forevermore. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, there will be some here who know that they haven't received it. I can't think of a single good reason not to. If that is you, we'd love you to keep coming. Please come back over Easter. Explore it more and more with us. But I know too that for the vast majority of us, just like the Corinthians, we know this grace already. And yet we need to be reminded of it. Because the grace of the Lord Jesus doesn't always shape our everyday life and every aspect of it in the way that it should. I said a few moments ago, it might be good for us to stop and give thanks for all of the good things we enjoy, uh, we enjoy in life. If that's true of our material blessings, it's even more true of our salvation. Do I need maybe a, a fresh reminder of the love that God has for me? Because of the way that I feel about myself, the way I've been treated by others, maybe. Do I need encouragement to, to fight sin and pursue godliness? Do I need my, my heart attitude to ambition and relationships and money to be transformed? Well, then come back to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Remember how much God has given you and how much it cost him. 
And only then are we ready to think about what we give to God. Second major heading then, the grace of giving. And the question I want us to think about this time is how much can I give back to God? Not you'll notice how much do I have to give to God as though it's some sort of cold duty or obligation. But how much can I? Because it is a joy-filled privilege. Uh, That's why all through our passage, Paul keeps referring to our financial giving to God and his work and his people as as a grace. Did you spot that? So in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That grace isn't their salvation. That's their generosity, as it's described in verse 2. Uh, is there again in verse 4, it's slightly hidden in the ESV, but literally the Macedonians are begging earnestly for the favor, the grace of taking part in the collection. In verse 6, Paul urged Titus to complete this act of grace. Again, speaking about the collection in verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Uh, the other word that repeats through the section is uh, abundance or overflow. It's a favorite word in 2 Corinthians. It's twice there in verse 2. Paul describes the abundance of the joy of the Macedonians that overflowed. It's the same word in a wealth of generosity. Again, twice more in verse 7, just as you literally abound or overflow in everything, see that you overflow in this act of grace also. So the movement is of grace coming down And it causes joy to rise up in abundance, which then overflows in the grace of generosity. Grace comes down, joy rises up, and generosity flows out. That will be the pattern in every Christian. And apart from the Lord Jesus, uh, the best example of what that looks like in practice is found in these churches of Macedonia. They're better known to us as the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea that Paul talks about in Acts. And let's read then about their grace from verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Notice a few things about their, their giving. I think these can serve as an encouragement and an example to us. The first is their joy in verse 2. Their giving wasn't grudging or reluctant or hesitant. It was the natural overflow of the abundance of their joy in Christ. Because their love for Christ had severed the root of the love of money that grows by nature in all of our hearts. So their joy. Second, their generosity Verse 2, often when we face affliction, have you noticed our suffering can drive us inward? And it can lead us almost to an obsessive concern for ourselves. But even in the midst of a severe test of affliction, even in the midst of poverty, these guys continue to overflow in generosity. Well, to put it differently, they didn't give just because God had made them rich. They gave even though he hadn't. 
Because generosity isn't the exclusive privilege of the wealthy. Third, remarkably, is their sacrifice. Um, I always tell people that they shouldn't go into debt for the sake of Christian giving. I, I think I stand by that. But notice in verse 3, these guys didn't just give according to their means, but they gave beyond them. So I think they must have worked out what they could comfortably afford. And then they went beyond it to the point that it hurt. Fourth, they gave freely of their own accord. It wasn't because someone stood up and told them to. Fifth, maybe most incredible of all, see their determination in verse 4? Most people beg to get money. These guys begged for the grace and privilege of being allowed to give it away. Isn't that a staggering turnaround? That's what grace does. One writer says, instead of the calculated thriftiness of an accountant, sorry, if you're an accountant, you are calculated and thrifty, I am sure. That's what some of you are hoping to be later on in life, isn't it? These guys instead demonstrate the almost irrational extravagance of a lover. It's a brilliant comparison. And again, that's what the grace of Jesus does. It comes down from heaven. It causes joy to rise up and then generosity to flow out. Uh, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul, as I said, is encouraging his friends to join the churches in Macedonia in the the grace of joy-filled, sacrificial, determined, and generous giving. For them, it meant supporting Paul's collection for some impoverished Christians that they'd never met. But the same principles drive the heart of all Christian giving. And whether we're giving to contributing to the material needs of suffering believers around the world, which is a great thing to do, or we're supporting the work of the gospel directly, here or abroad, or we're giving to any other kind of charity, this will be the pattern. And so I want to encourage us to learn today, both from the grace of the Lord Jesus and the example of the Macedonians. Do you spot where it started for the Macedonians back in verse 5 on page 967? Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. So we're thinking about our finances this morning, but these few words highlight a much deeper priority that is, in fact, the, the wellspring of all Christian living and service. And long before God cares about what we do uh, with our money and our time and our energies, his fundamental concern is about what we do with ourselves. And I guess we give ourselves in life to many different things. We give ourselves necessarily to our work and to our family life and to our hobbies, to causes that are close to our heart. But before and above them all, the call of grace is that we give our very selves all that we have and all that we are to the Lord. I encourage us to look around our home and our life to remember that every good thing is a gift from the Lord. The equivalent here is to offer it all back as a gift for the Lord. To say, Lord, I want you to take my life, take my body, take my reputation, take my talents, take my opportunities, and teach me to use everything that I am and everything that I have 
for your glory. I give myself to you, Lord, completely and unreservedly. And of course, what we do with our resources is part of that. Uh, King David prays back in 1 Chronicles 29. I love it. He begins by praising God for his greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then he asks, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer anything to you willingly for All things come from you, and of your own have we given you. That's why the question I'm asking us to ponder isn't what can I give to God, but what can I give back to God? Because whether we're talking about our money or our time, it all came from him in the first place. It all belongs to him still, and we are merely stewards of it for him and his glory. So I wonder what you could give back to the Lord this year. Um, As a church, we are hugely excited about the work that God has entrusted to us here in St. Andrews and beyond. Um, We aim under God to reach out with the gospel to people who need Jesus desperately, to build people up in the gospel, to train workers for the gospel, to equip all of us to be disciple makers for Christ. We do lots already. And there is so much more that we could do. But of course it all costs money. As with everything in life, those costs are rising. Um, Our budgets show, I'll say more of this in our finance meeting in a bit, but just to break even this year without doing anything extra on top of what we already do and enjoy as a church family, uh, our internal church giving, just to break even, will need to rise by 10%. That's before we do anything extra. Uh, I want to stress that we are profoundly grateful to God for each and every instance of the grace of giving in the life of our church. The hours that some even now are spending teaching Sunday school, hours that people spend just something like looking over contracts for us or visiting people in need. The endless meals, the expressions of hospitality, the prayers. Every time someone said a word that's encouraged someone else to to give themselves to the Lord, as well as the money that is given often so sacrificially, so generously to this gospel ministry and to many other gospel works and good causes around the world as well. And uh, we know that for many things are tight. Uh, perhaps some, therefore, would be wise to reduce, you may not have expected me to say that, but to reduce the amount of money or time we give back to God this year. That might be right for you, if you're extended beyond your means. For others, it would be right to maintain our giving at the level that it was last year. For some, perhaps, we might be able to increase or to start a new habit of giving. That would be a real blessing to us as well as to others. There's no magic figure of how much you're meant to give. People talk about 10% as though that were a law, but we're free. And for some people, 10% of what we take in each year would be far too much. For others, it would be far too little. But my suspicion is that there will be a number here who have never thought about or never planned to give in a particularly financially, in a considered and intentional way. 
And I want to suggest that it's part of our godliness that we should do that. First, that we plan deliberately to give ourselves to the Lord and then giving of our resources to his work. They are all his anyway. And when we think about the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ has shown to us, I hope we will think deep in our hearts that giving back to him isn't a hardship or a burden, but a wonderful privilege. And wouldn't it be thrilling if as grace has come down, our joy were to rise up so much to abound and overflow that we found ourselves begging for the privilege and grace of giving to God's work. It would definitely make the treasurer's job a bit easier as well. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we do want to thank you again for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we are not worthy of his love, And yet he was willing to experience such brutality and poverty so that we might be so abundantly blessed and made eternally rich. We thank you for him. We thank you for other believers who have given sacrificially to the work of the church in history like these Macedonians who are such a great example to us. We thank you for those within our congregation and those outside of our congregation who give so sacrificially so that we are able to uh, exist as a church family. And we would go on praying that you would help us all to give ourselves to you and then to consider what we might give financially and in time and energies as well. Uh, And we pray that as you have always done in the past, that you would continue to provide for our every need in and through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.